The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Hey, a gift, a gift, uh, by, by the very definition of what a gift is, is something that is uh, unearned um, and unconditional in the giving of it. It's something that the giver gives willingly and without a condition to the other person, to the one receiving it. Uh, the giver needs uh, no reason uh, to give, looks for no payment in return. That's the very nature of a gift. And we do a gift giving, by the way, we do it a disservice. And um, Christmas is coming, so keep this in mind. We do gift giving a disservice when we give knowing that the other person is going to give back to us. Uh, that's actually not gift giving, that's trade. It's, it's reciprocity. And, and this is especially true when you start to equal out the gifts. Well, they, they are going to give me a gift of about $25, so I'm going to give them a gift of about $25. We've sapped out the power of gift giving when we do that. Gift, by definition, is something giving, given willingly and without condition. And in Exodus 16 and 17 today, the passage that we're going to be living in, God gave some gifts to his people, and he gave them willingly, and he gave these gifts to his people unconditionally, as we'll see in the text, really because they were in dire need of receiving these gifts. And these gifts were, and this is going to be an important word for us today, but write down this phrase, they were an act of grace. They were an act of grace toward his people. And all the people had to do was just receive what God had for them. And through Jesus Christ, the great news for us here today is through Jesus Christ, he's offering us the same, the same gifts today uh, through his son. We're no less in need. He's no uh, less willing to give these gifts to you. They come from his willing heart. They're coming to us unconditionally. And all we have to do is receive what he's offering to us today. So that's what we're going after in the text. Why don't we pray to get ourselves started here and we'll start working through these two chapters from Exodus. Uh, Father, um, I always feel the urgency to preach uh, your word. Uh, Father, not knowing what will become of us and what will happen after we leave this room. But Father, world events uh, have again shocked, uh, shocked me into a greater urgency today about your word. And Father, I hope we're all sitting here uh, really feeling the need to get a word from you. We need to hear again of your grace toward us, and we need to hear the truth. So Father, as, um, as I speak from your word, I pray, God, that this message would be uh, full of grace and full of truth. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray these things. Amen. All right. Receive God's grace when you are 
in any one of several challenging circumstances that we're going to see uh, the children of Israel go through in Exodus 16 and 17. Receive God's grace when you are, let's start here, a continually complaining. Some of you by nature have very positive, glass half full uh, kind of attitudes about you. And I just want to say on behalf of the church, those of you who have very positive attitudes, we love you. We love you. You're amazing. Keep it up. But there are some among us who, let's be honest, are chronic complainers. And let me say this on behalf of everyone in the room. No one likes that about you. No one, no one likes that about any of you who are chronic complainers about everything. So let's see if we can get some grace on top of that, amen? amen. Let's get some grace on top of the complaining. Uh, this was really the big problem facing the Jews. They were and had become chronic complainers, though they had no reason to be. In fact, in these two chapters, the word grumbling or murmuring, depending on what translation you're holding, um, is used nine times the word is used. It really is the theme of this entire passage. Uh, the title of the message, rather than emphasizing grace, could really be just been about uh, reasons why we should not complain. It really dominates everything here, this grumbling and murmuring. Let's um, get an understanding of that word, first of all. The Hebrew word that is translated grumbling or murmuring here uh, comes, the root word comes from the same word that means to lodge, to stay in a place. And, and it, literally when it says that they're murmuring and complaining, it means that they have, they have decided to stand pat. They have found a place and they're stubbornly remaining in that place and they're immovable and, and in that place they've decided to complain and to state really what becomes an overt rebellious attitude toward their circumstances because they've decided to be unmovable. Well, as an example of the complaining, we'll talk about it here just in the first three verses of chapter 16. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Uh, that has nothing to do with actual sin. It's just the name of the place, just coincidental in English that it kind of turned out that way, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Uh, they've been 30 days on the road after the escape. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now they're just complaining murmuring, grumbling, and this time it's a very real need. No one's disputing the fact that it's hard when you're hungry. And they were hungry and they were out of food. And I feel like I keep coming back to the same point again and again. Here they are with this need, but let's review the short history of just maybe two, three months worth of what's just happened God's performed miraculous signs, 10 plagues in the nation of Egypt that crushed Pharaoh's power and got him to release them from their slavery. 
they departed and as they were leaving, people from, people from all over were handing them their worldly possessions as they're plundering the Egyptians on the way out the door. God leads them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He protects them from the uh, approaching Egyptian army. He cuts a way through the sea. They walk through on dry land. God destroys that army utterly and completely. And on the other side of the Red Sea, he provides water for them at a place where there was no drinkable water. And all of that happening just in the space of maybe 60 or 90 days. And I wonder why they're complaining and why they aren't just waiting to see God do the next awesome thing that he was going to do. His track record should have been so obvious to them. And yet they're complaining. Now this is really a what have you done for me lately attitude that they have that very often we can have. Well, I know all the awesome things that God has done for me, but I'm in a pretty tough spot right now and God isn't coming through for me. And we complain against him in the very same way because God hasn't done anything lately for me, at least not according to our perceptions. Let's call this what it is. It's sin. This complaining is sin. So let's get after this. I... I put together a quick little top 10 list of things that people should stop complaining about. Let's get after these. Number 10, <clears throat> road construction. You com- <laughs> Honestly, you complain about the quality of the roads. That road's so bad, there's not enough lanes. And then when the construction crews come, and, and you complain about that, but they're making it the way you want it. Number nine, the sorry state of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Number eight, gas prices. Number seven, typos and grammar errors. No, actually, cross cross that one out. That's really important. We should complain about that. (laughs) Number six, government. We complain about government so much, and, and quite honestly, we have no right to. Winston Churchill said that uh, democracy, Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst kind of government, except for all the other kinds. Okay, so be, be thankful. Number five, how slow free Wi-Fi is. Okay, like it's free. It's free. If you want better Wi-Fi, pay for it. Number four, the weather. Could we just have a pact right now? It's November. We all know what's coming. You move to Barrie. You live here. You know what's coming. Just have, just have a pact. We're not going to talk about the weather again until it's nice in the spring. Agreed? Who's in? Who's in? No complaining about the weather. Number three, traffic. Number two, lineups. Number one, Starbucks coffee cups. (laughs) You can see I have some fun when I'm prepping messages, right? All right. See, here's the the problem. Complaining is actually what, what I would call a compound sin. Okay, it's just a sin that betrays another sin that's below the surface. It's just the surface sin. We hear the complaining, but it's rooted in something else. That's, that's the challenge that we have here. And you could just decide, okay, I'm not going to complain anymore, but if you don't deal with the root sin, you're going to fall right back into the complaining again. 
So ready for another list that's a little bit more serious? Here's the um, six sins behind the complaining. A discontent. I'm just not happy with how God is kind of rolling out my life. I'm not happy about it. Or ingratitude. I'm not thankful enough. And I would dare say that there aren't very many people in the room who ought not to be just sitting back and saying thank you for a thousand things. And if we were really making a list and stopping to truly be thankful, that it would take us an entire day and we wouldn't exhaust the number of things that God has given to us that we ought to be saying thank you for. Or arrogance, it's just rooted in my pride. I complain because I think I deserve better than what I have. Just flat out arrogance or jealousy. I don't like what others have and I want those things. And so I complain. I missed impatience. Lack of trust in God's provision and plan for you. God's provided so much and, and, and somehow I just complain because I feel like he's not going to come through the next time. And on what basis do you say that? Receive God's grace when you're continually complaining. God has grace for this. I want to say to the complainers, to the people afflicted with these six root sins, I want to say to you, I want to say to myself, God has grace for that. And all you have to do is receive the grace he has for you. Father, forgive me for complaining. Forgive me for the root sins that are behind my complaining. Just receive the grace. And then how about this, willfully ignorant? Receive God's grace when you're willfully ignorant. No one really wants to put this label on themselves, but as things progress here, uh, the people of Israel are not listening or they're stupid or they're flat out rebellious. I'm not sure which it is. I just didn't hear what you said. Or I'm too stupid to figure it out. Or I heard what you said and I don't really want to obey it. So what, what, what exactly is it? I, I feel like that could describe some in this room as well. I feel like it could describe me at times. Despite their grumbling, God, despite their grumbling and complaining, despite their horrific attitude, God still provides them what they need without questioning them, without going after them, without any discipline. He just pours out quail, and to manna, he gives them food. Now check this out. Some very specific uh, instructions going on here. The Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Notice that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Are they going to listen? Are they going to listen to the word of God or not? On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. He's heard it, 
but he's still going to provide for you in a miraculous way. He's still going to give you the thing that you need. Someone tell me, someone tell me what that is. That's grace. It's grace. That's what God is pouring out here time and again. Verse 9, Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The God being so a gracious toward them to provide this, this bread, this manna, this quail, the quail kind of a secondary meal just for the evening, but the manna was to be gathered in the morning would last the entire day, clearly the more important of the two provisions. It would be their full sustenance throughout their entire wilderness journey. And it was sweet and amazing in every way. It was described as a wafer-like substance that, was, that tasted like honey. Honey was very rare for them. The ability to, to bake and create something that was wafer-like, this was so beyond. This was the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and God was providing it for his people. What's awesome about this is, as a, a side note that truly is not a side note, is that Jesus talks about the manna. and In John chapter 6, he's talking uh, to his followers and he's saying to them, uh, God gave you manna, gave the people manna in the desert, but, but then he said, I am the bread of life and whoever eats of me will never hunger again. And Jesus Christ is the provision of, of all that we need, he is our lifelong and eternal sustenance. He is God's grace to us. If only we would receive him. So God says here, back to Exodus 16, he tells them to gather only uh, what they need for each day. Uh, verse uh, 17, the people of Israel did so, they gathered some they gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Moses said to them, I let no one leave any over till the morning. Now remember, it was so important that they listened to what God had said. The whole thing was a test about what God said. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning and it bred worms and stank. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it, it melted. They didn't listen to Moses. God, God gave them all they needed for that day. He wanted them to trust in the moment for what God was going to do on that day and no further. They couldn't do it. Then in verse 22, they're told to gather a double. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is the day of solemn rest. 
They're starting to hear the first about Sabbath now and how they're to observe that, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Thank goodness. And Moses said, eat it today for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. So the whole point was now they're not gonna gather on the Sabbath day. They're gonna gather twice as much on the day before. But some of them again did not listen. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Why did you go out to gather? Were you not told? Why didn't you listen to the word of God? Why are you just so openly, willfully ignorant of the things that God has said? The latter part of verse, or chapter 16 is really a fact sheet on manna and all of this to say, it's just never a good idea to hear the word of God, to know and understand what it says, and then to willfully disobey it. To walk away unmoved by its authority in your life. I will tell you right now, it's a dangerous thing for you to come here, to sit through a service, to hear the word of God taught, to understand the clarity of it, and then to decide that you're not going to listen to what it's saying. I'm going to tell you it would have been better for you not to come here today. Now for the Jewish people here, the consequences uh, were not that dire. Uh, the manna just rotted. It, it stank up the house a little bit. They're just going to burn a candle and make that go away. For those who, who didn't gather enough on, on the sixth day and on the seventh day didn't have anything to eat, that's just one day of not eating. It's not a dire consequence and they would learn the lesson next week. No one's gonna die from not eating for a day. The consequences were not, not great in this case, but the consequences of not getting under the authority of this book can be tragic. The consequences can have eternal effect in our lives and will result in great pain and tragedy for you. And in your willful ignorance, I would say that God has grace for you. And you can receive it uh, today. Uh, Father, forgive me for my willful ignorance of your word. What about if you're openly rebellious? This really kind of steps off the last one. And in chapter 17, uh, things change a little bit, and we have another water issue. In this case, Moses uses some pretty strong language in speaking to the people. All the congregation of the people, 17.1, of the people uh, of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Again, God led them to a place where there's no water. The pillar of cloud and fire led them to a place where there's no water. When God leads you to a place where there's going to be a desperate need in your life, a place of trial and challenge, understand he led you there for a reason. He intends to show his power. He intends to grow you. He intends to advance your plan. There's no mistake that they're in this place. 
that there's no water there. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? But then this question, why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're such drama queens, aren't they? Over and over and over again, it's the same thing. Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now Moses kind of loses his way just a little bit here. Because if the Lord requires Moses' life, he was in the service of the Lord. If, if God would require that of Moses, he should be willing to give it. I would hope that I put in a similar place that if my life was required of me for the sake of the gospel, that I would willingly give that and I wouldn't complain. Moses, this is a little bit of complaining on your part. I wouldn't complain about having to give it. But Moses is, is kind of feeling a little sorry for himself here. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you uh, struck the Nile. He's going to take his staff now, and this staff becomes, in a couple of cases as we go through the rest of chapter 17, it becomes the symbol of the authority of God. So that the people, be, it's just very clear for the people that this isn't about Moses and his authority or anything he can accomplish, but the authority symbolically in the staff is from the Lord. And so that's going to play out for us a little bit as we work through this. So take the staff with it, you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now I'm stung by that. Because this is the very thing that we say in the midst of our own trials. Is God with me or not? Is God here or not? Is God listening to my prayers or not? And it comes from a lack of faith. It comes from a complaining spirit. It comes from the pride that says I deserve better than what I'm getting. And it's not a good place to be. At the very least, we should be recognizing that he's with us and pleading with him in our weakness and calling out for his grace to be poured out in our lives, but not abandoning the notion that he's with us, he is. Not accusing him of anything he's not guilty of. God is truly with us. His grace evident all around us. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? It's just a bad idea to test God, don't you think? It's a bad idea to put God to the test. So Moses, Moses takes his staff and he smacks the rock with it and out flows water. 
again, a, a demonstration of God's grace because we would say, judging by everything we've read about these people, they don't deserve what God has just given to them. And that, by definition, is grace. And some of you here are living in open rebellion against God even while you sit in this room this morning. Some of you know exactly what you ought to be doing to live in holiness and righteousness. And yet you're living in rebellion. In some cases, you think no one knows about it, but, but someone does. Maybe your spouse knows, but you're putting on a good face here this morning. Or, or maybe your kids know, and we think we can hide more from our kids than we actually can. But someone knows. Some of you are married, but you're carrying on an affair. You are in a relationship with someone else. It's, it's overt rebellion. Some of you are dating. You're not married. But you're in a sexual relationship. And you know you ought not to be doing it. And you're in overt rebellion, open rebellion against the Lord. Some of you are stealing from your company. You have an obligation to work a certain number of hours for the paycheck you receive, but you're stealing time by coming in late and leaving early or not working when you ought to be working. Or maybe you're stealing in actual money and somehow you figured out how to do that. You're defrauding your business. Some of you are cheating on your taxes, not declaring all of your income. thieves. You're in open rebellion against the Lord. Some of you are gripped by addictions. You just won't admit it. And you won't seek the help you need because you can't overcome it on your own. And I want to say to you that God has grace for you. God has grace for every one of you in every one of those situations and he's willing to pour it out and all you need to do is receive it. Father, forgive me for my rebellion against you. That's all it takes. He's that good. Now that really deals, those first three really deal with uh, sin issues and uh, these latter two, not so much, more about circumstances that come upon us, but you may find also that you're being severely tested. And we move into a part of the history here where the Israelites are going into battle for the first time. This is actual combat where they're going to have to be involved in the fight itself. And the battle with the Amalekites was a severe test. They were going to have to defend themselves with the help of God rather than simply watching as the Lord did it himself. And this is really one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Exodus because of one a simple thing about how God's grace often gets delivered to us as the followers of Christ. Let me read it here. This begins at verse 8 then. 
Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. Now, um, I'm not a great example of this. I probably couldn't hold my hands up with this staff for very long at all. But even if we got someone up here who was quite jacked, and uh, they held up this uh, staff for a while, there would come a point at which they could no longer hold up their arms. There just comes a point where this becomes untenable, impossible, and you have to lower your hands. And that's the situation that Moses finds himself in. Moses' hands grew weary as the battle goes on, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, two observations for me that come out of this text. The first is this. It is, it is an act of God's grace to put us into trials, into difficult circumstances, to grow our faith, to build us into the people he wants us to be, to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ, to increase our faith. That is God's intention. Whatever you're going through right now, God intends it, that you would grow in your understanding of who he is. And a second observation, it is God's grace to us that in these times, and this is the thing I love so much, it's the Aaron and her part. But it is God's grace to us that in these times, God gives us one another to go through these challenging seasons. Now I speak to you with experience here, that there have been times as I have been a pastoring, and I've been... Um, uh, pastoring now for uh, about 23 years. And there have been times in ministry uh, where it was no longer enjoyable. It wasn't fun. Every day was hard. Times when I wanted to run and escape and get out from under it. Times when I felt like God had abandoned me in our church. I've been in that place. Times when I couldn't see myself clear to write the sermon and be ready for, for the weekend. And I had men who came alongside me who, like Aaron and her, lifted my arms when I couldn't hold them up any longer. Some who are in this room who prayed for me and with me, who gave me scripture, who pointed me to worship, who told me hard things that I needed to hear, who were there and remained under with me and walked every step of the journey with me. That is God's grace. Human manifestation of God's grace to me. And I know any of you who have gone through difficult seasons, you can point to very similar times and people who came alongside you and held up your hands when you couldn't do it any longer. That's God's grace. No matter what you're facing, I'm going to tell you right now, God has grace for it. No matter how difficult your circumstances, God has grace for you. And all you have to do is receive it. 
Father, I need your grace. I need some help. Would you send Aaron and her to stand beside me and help me through the trials and testings that I'm facing? And then this one, um, receive God's grace when you are deeply discouraged. This really plays off the last one. And when we get into trials and difficult circumstances and we don't get to a good place in our attitude and, and how we're handling all of that, it is so easy to fall into deep discouragement. And in the face of the battle with the Amalekites, uh, God makes a promise to his people. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And God makes a promise to the people and assures them that the Amalekites will not be a problem going forward, though they would see them again in their future. Though there are more trials to come, though there are more challenges to face, though it is inevitable that you will face difficulties in your life, I'm going to be with you. Don't be discouraged, don't fall into despair. I feel sometimes that in the truth-telling, as I uh, preach God's word here, in the truth-telling and, and, and reminding you that none of us is immune from trials, this isn't a happy, slappy message. I'm not a smiley-faced preacher that's just going to tell you what you want to hear so you walk out of here feeling good but under, on, with no substance to it. I'm going to tell you the truth. In this life, you will have difficulties. And that can be discouraging to think about unless you also know that God's grace is going to be with you every step of the way. And that God has a purpose for it all. And here they were, not long out of Egypt, already feeling the effects of being unwanted and violently opposed. And these Amalekites, you need to know something about them. This is actually blood feud. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Esau was the older brother of Jacob. These children of Israel who have escaped Egypt, they're all the children of Jacob. Jacob stole Esau's birthright, deceiving their father Isaac, so that Esau should have had all the birthright and all the privileges of being the firstborn, and Jacob took it all away. And so you have an entire people group, these Amalekites, the grandson of Esau, who have this hatred for the people of Jacob, the people of Israel. They're a nomadic people who make their way to villages and, 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 and hit upon caravans and traveling people and, and steal from them. That's the way they make their living. Wild, untamed people. These are the people that Israel had to face and it would have been painful for them in every way. But God says he has grace for that. And I would just say this, left unchecked, trials can drive us into discouragement and even despair apart from the grace of God holding us tightly to him. God gave them a promise. 
And then Moses built an altar to the Lord. And he declared that the Lord had this name, the Lord is my banner. And in actual fact, the, the word banner is a bit unfortunate in terms of its translation into English because we would naturally think about a flag. We would, we would think about a military banner or a flag of some kind, a standard, a waving over the armies of Israel as they went off into battle. But that's not exactly what the word means. In fact, it literally means a pole. And at the time, uh, they would carry not a flag into battle, but a pole. And that would be really a rallying point for them. And if you think about uh, the staff that Moses was carrying, and as he's standing on that mountain, holding it high over them, this is what he means by the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my rally point. I understand that the authority of God is symbolized in the staff that Moses is carrying and holding high above the battlefield. The Lord, the Lord is the rallying point. And in that I find my strength. We thank God for that. We find a sense of identity and security in the Lord being our banner. And I would just say to you, if your trial has been long and intense, and if there's no end in sight for you, if the road ahead seems hard, then I would like you to know that God's grace is sufficient for you. And I would offer as evidence the testimony of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, he said this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, let's just pause there for a second. God had allowed Paul to see glimpses of eternity. He had literally conducted him and taken him into a place where he could view what heaven is going to be like. That's awesome in every way. But you can imagine how much you could then step away from that and say to all of your friends, hey, I've seen heaven. It's awesome, and I'm an awesome person because God let me see it. And you could see how pride would well up inside of a person who had the privilege of seeing that. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know what that is. It's a trial of some kind. He describes it as a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that is grace manifested in the life of a man who is so faithful to God that we might hold him up as the supreme example of those who are faithful through all circumstances. The thorn in the flesh was just one of the trials that Paul went through. God saw fit not to remove the trial. It was a lifelong infirmity of some kind that plagued him. 
And despite his faithfulness, God saw it necessary to have that in his life. And so again, we don't deserve anything from the Lord. It's all grace. And I would have it that if you're in a very difficult circumstance, that this would not be just Paul's testimony, but that you would write this out personally for yourself. That this could become your testimony. That these could become your words. That you could say of the difficult circumstances that you're facing. That when I am weak, then I am strong. That God's grace is sufficient. So receive God's grace in all of these circumstances. Let it abound in your life. But then let me give you three qualifiers about grace that we can't miss. These are all from the book of Romans. First of all, this, don't assume his grace. Don't assume it. It's presumptuous to think that since we received his grace, we will always receive his grace. That since he was so patient uh, with me, that he'll always be patient with me. It's a false assumption. Paul writes this in Romans chapter two. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And Paul's about to say to them, you can't presume upon it. It's not always gonna be there. His kindness, his forbearance, his patience. There will be an end to these things. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When grace comes to an end. Don't assume the grace of God. God's patience can run out. And every time we receive grace, we should thank the Lord Jesus for his kindness toward us. For the gift of his life that covers all of our sin. We should be so effusive in our gratitude toward him for what he's given to us. And not assuming we'll always have it. We can be disciplined for our sin. We can be chastised. We can face consequences for our sinful choices and actions. Don't assume his grace. And secondly, don't confuse his grace. Too many people when asked what makes them a Christ follower, you might have been asked that this week. What makes you a Christian? Maybe in your workplace, you're talking to somebody about this and they find out about your faith. What makes you a Christian? And the answer very often are things like this. Well, I, you know, I'm pretty faithful to my church. I, I, uh, I serve in my church. I'm a churchgoer. It's a regular part of my life. We put that forward as the, as the definition or, or as the explanation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We say, I'm a, I'm a Bible believer. Or I don't, I don't believe in this as a Christian. What makes me a Christian is I don't believe in these things or, or I do believe in these things. We make it, listen, when we give that kind of an answer, we make it about ourselves. We make it about our ethic or our decisions. I believe the Bible. I do this. I go to church. I serve Jesus. And we make it about ourselves. And we're confused about grace. And so let me take you all the way back to the beginning of you coming to faith in Christ. And if you didn't get this first thing, then with all due respect to you, you're not saved. 
If you don't understand this, if you haven't accepted it, then you are not saved. You might be religious. You might even be a member of this church. Uh, but you're not saved. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, saved, that's what the word justified is, are saved by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what that means is that you can do nothing, uh, you have done nothing to earn your salvation, to get into a relationship with God, to be guaranteed a spot in heaven, however you want to say that. It's certainly clear in the text that you don't deserve it, so you can't earn it, you don't deserve it in any way. And really, that's our definition of grace that I would offer to you. It is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. And by it alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, you are saved. It is the gift of God. And honestly, if you think you're impressing God with your good works or your generosity or your religious observance or how often you do your devotions or how many serving teams you're on, your good works, your generosity, your knowledge of the Bible, your moral choices, if you think any of that is impressing God and earning your salvation, you're wrong. You're wrong. Now, all of those are great things, and they should be the outflow of a life that's already been committed to Christ, a life that's already been saved by him. But don't get it backwards. The mark of a true believer has nothing to do with what you've done. The mark of a true believer has everything to do with what Christ has done for you. And so the answer to the person who asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? What it means is that I accepted the free gift of grace that he gave me. Not everything, not anything you're doing. That Jesus offered me the forgiveness of my sins by his grace as a gift and I received the gift, period. End of sentence. If you're saved, Jesus saved you. You didn't save you, you can't save you. Don't assume his grace, don't confuse his grace, and then this, don't abuse his grace. A grace abuser is someone who continues to willfully sin, expecting God will continue to forgive him. And we have this abundant provision of grace that multiplies when sin multiplies. I love that. Paul's argument at the end of Romans 5 is this, that that where, um, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I love that idea, but follow the logic. Is grace a good thing? Grace is a great thing. And, and if, if there's lots of sin, more grace is being poured out. And so if you follow the logic, then if we sinned more, we would get more grace. That's that's the logic that we could follow to get to this really bad place of abusing the grace of God. But the great news about this abundance of grace is this, that no one's out of his reach. There's no sin so heinous that God can't forgive it. That there's no one so far gone, there's nothing that you have done, you couldn't shock me today, 
You certainly won't shock God. His grace is sufficient for all of this. No one is disqualified from receiving his grace. But we should not for a minute believe that we can intentionally abuse grace in that way. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? ESV says, by no means, but the King James Version is far better here. God forbid. God forbid. How can we who died to sin, those of us who are believers, who have received the grace of God and the gift of salvation, how shall we who have died to sin live in it any longer? Grace that does not lead to holiness, grace that does not lead to holiness is counterfeit. We are saved without cost by grace and the evidence is in a transformed life. Don't abuse his grace. Though it's abundant and free, don't abuse it. Well, we are in this series bound for glory. We're headed to a destination that is filled with the glory of God. And the amazing thing about grace is that it is God's gift to us along the way in that journey until we see and experience and actually become the glory of God ourselves. And I love what Jonathan Edwards, he's an 18th century preacher and pastor, what he said, a grace is but glory begun and glory is but grace perfected. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, in these moments uh, for the way that you have uh, given us uh, this gift of grace, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice for us on the cross and for what that means to every person in this room, those who are uh, saved. Father, it meant the cleansing of our sin, the justifying of us before you, the ongoing process of being sanctified and made like you and the eventual destination of uh, being glorified in you. So God, thank you for all of that. And, and Father, grace enough for those in the room who have not yet received that gift. God, I pray that any in this room who have not yet found the forgiveness of their sins would receive the grace of God today. Father, thank you for hearing this prayer, for this time that we've had together in your word. I pray in Christ's name. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.